the first Samuel chapter 25. First Samuel 25, our goal is, is to get through the whole chapter. Um, so for you state workers, you may have to go in late tomorrow, but <laughs> insert joke there. Um, but uh, um, nevertheless, uh, uh, Lord willing, we'll get through this. So if you will stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. The writer for Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in, in Mayan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a, a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be, all, uh, be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were in the Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants, to your son David. Then David's young men came, and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from, from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away, came back, and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, and all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five saves of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under in cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. He's returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for his name is, so he, he is. Uh, Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom, he, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving 
with your own hand. Now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the Lord your enemies and, and the lives of your enemies, he shall cling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord had done to my Lord, according to all the good that he had spoken concerning you, has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains or conscience having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said, Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, the, he was working a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has, sent, has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, our ears, our entire being. We would take your word, be transformed by it, apply it to our lives. May we see the good news of our mediator, Jesus Christ, the King. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if when you were growing up or maybe now that you are growing up, does your family have what we called family meetings? Uh, these, we call them family meetings because they weren't meetings. They were uh, uh, trials, um, I guess would be the word for it, right? There would be a brief investigation followed by condemnation followed by carrying out of the punishment, right? These were our family meetings. And in almost in every family meeting, my parents would say the same thing to my brother and I. They look at my brother and, and say to him, you know the buttons to push on your younger brother. You just, just no one else is like it. You, you just know how to push those buttons to set him off. And I've, I've struggled with anger issues. And, and, and it is true, my brother could just, he could just push that button to set me off. I can be in a situation where, where, yeah, I could be mistreated, people could say nasty things, but maybe I can resolve it calmly. But then my brother, when we were growing up, could just walk in the room. And somehow, 
His mere presence was like Dennis the Menace with the red button that said, do not push. He just knew what buttons to push on me. And suddenly I just couldn't handle it anymore. Maybe I can handle those other situations calmly with wisdom, but but this situation over here, for whatever reason, it would just set me off and I would lose my mind. Now, maybe that's not your story with the sibling, though I'm sure it is, but maybe your problem is in traffic. You're, You're perfectly calm and nice, and then people don't hit go when the light turns green. And suddenly that button is pushed. I don't know what your story might be, but one of the things you'll notice about reading this this long chapter is, is if you've been with us, particularly from last week to this week, you know that we are reading the same character, but he is very different in personality between the two chapters. In chapter 24, David had an opportunity to, to, to uh, exercise himself of the predator, of Saul, and he chooses to spare Saul's life. Here, he's dealing with a, with a fool who, uh, whenever turns David down, uh, he, he grabs his swords, round up the men, and says, let's go uh, slaughter an entire people group. How in the world do we go from one to the other? Well, in order to, to explore this chapter in a timely fashion, let's highlight some of the main characters we have here. First of all, we have Samuel, the dead prophet. It's striking, isn't it, that that the narrative is interrupted with this funeral. Now, Samuel died. Well, that's just just that just sticks out to the text, doesn't it? If you know anything about first Samuel is it's about a guy uh, or not the whole book, but but a big chunk of it is about a guy named Samuel. Hence the name. Now, to Samuel, uh, he's 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 not around. He's if you can't tell dead. But uh, nevertheless, both books have been named after him in honor. Samuel is the last of the judges. Uh, and is considered the first of the prophets. He is a large figure in the biblical narrative. And what is striking about this text is how brief it is. Look, it's not even an entire verse in your English Bible. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house of Ramal. Oh, and before we leave the verse, it goes, oh, with that said, let's pick up where we are with David. Okay, now that I told you Samuel's dead, because that's going to come into play later on in the narrative uh, with, with Saul. Saul's going to try to talk to Samuel uh, through, a, through a necromancer. But, 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 but uh, you get that, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, we don't care about Samuel. Let's, let's just talk about David. It's, it's striking, isn't it? Here is this large figure in the story that upon his death doesn't even get an entire verse. In fact, it is about 20 words long, the death of Samuel. That's very striking to me, considering that over uh, 17 years of ministry, I've read a lot of obituaries, and some of them are too short, not very many of them. Most of them are too long. Can can we just be honest with that? They're they're too long, Uh, because many of us live lives that that, that maybe aren't worth uh, as much dedicated as it might be. Let me give you a few examples here for my own entertainment, okay? This will not bless you spiritually, but it sure did bless me in my need for a good laugh. I'd like to tell you that, read to you the obituary of Tony LaRue. Quote, Waffle House lost a loyal customer on April 30th, 2013. It gets better. Tony LaRue died after a battle with multiple illnesses, lupus, rickets, scurvy, kidney disease, and feline leukemia. 
She had previously conquered polio as a child, contributing to her unusually petite ankles and the nickname Polio Legs, given to her by her ex-husband, Jean LaRue Jr. It should not be difficult to imagine the multiple reasons for their divorce 35-plus years ago. Two children resulted from that marriage, Hayden Hoffman and Jean LaRue III, due to multiple anonymous Mother's Day cards which arrived each May, the children suspected there were other siblings, but has never been verified. See what I mean about some of our obituaries a little long? I got one more for you. I took one of them out for the sake of time, but if you really want them that bad, I'll send it to you in email. Ida May Russell Seals. Quote, Ida May has a, had a rich but strict childhood. Ida graduated from Messick High School in 1950 and attended Memphis State University. Ida married high school friend Carl Hathaway. On January 31st, 1953, a child was born named Mary Denise. The marriage decayed and the couple divorced in 1954. Ida's marriage to Carl was a three-ring circus. Engagement ring, wedding ring, and suffering. Ida met and married Albert Seals in 1960. Ida said, quote, I never knew what real happiness was until I got remarried. Then it was too late. That's the end of the obituary. I, that's it. That's at the end. That's everything we want you to know about mom, right? right? And what does Samuel get? He died and was buried in his hometown. Next scene. I actually think there's something we, we, can, we can glean from Samuel here. And just real briefly, I want to share them with you. First of all, Samuel's life was larger than his obituary. Samuel's life was larger than, than his obituary. Choose to live a life, I would say, that, that is large enough that a simple obituary is, is insufficient. You can have a large obituary where people can say a lot of things about you, but let it be content with what it is that we have here. That Samuel lived following after the glory of God and obedience to God for the cause of Christ, and he died and he was buried. That is a life well lived. That is a life well lived. The second thing I think we need to glean here is that Samuel's death did not signal the end of God's work. Throughout our lives, people will pass and we will feel as if our world, if not the world, has ended. Every generation has those figures that whenever that figure is gone, there is a sense of a passing of the torch. That, but there's a sense that, that what is coming will be nothing like what we have enjoyed. And that is true at a national sense. At a global sense, it's certainly true in a personal way, isn't it? That maybe it is parents or grandparents or siblings or cousins or co-workers or friends, whatever it might be, there is a sense that with this passing comes an end of, of, of the work. But, but we need to see here that God never ceases to work. After all, you have a book where the, the, the guy, two books are named after, he dies in the first half of the first book. And there's still more to his story, we could say, even though he's no longer around. And the reason is because of the legacy he leaves behind. It was, 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 he was raised by God and the work is continued by God. In his book on holiness, J.C. Ryle makes this point where he says, Fear not for the church of Christ when ministers die and saints are taken away. Christ can, can ever maintain his own cause. 
He will raise up better servants and brighter stars. The stars are all in his right hand. Leave off all anxious thought about the future. Cease to be cast down by the measures of statesmen or the plots of wolves in sheep's clothing. Christ will ever provide for his own church. Christ will take care that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All is going well, though our eyes may not see it. The kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of God and his Christ. See, Samuel's story may have come to an end, at least outside of what Saul will try to do later. Yet his influence continues, and God's work in Israel continues as well. And in striking, what we need to see is how in this chapter, we open with the funeral, the death of a dear saint, and it concludes with the death of a fool. And speaking of fool, let's, let us meet that man. That is... Uh, uh, well, that was unanticipated. There's more to it, but we'll just move on. There is Nabal the fool. Nabal the fool is, is the second character we, we see. And here we're introduced to a new character we've not met him before named Nabal, and he is a terrible human being. I want to highlight as briefly as I can just what we know about Nabal in this story. First of all, he was wealthy. And the language suggests more than he was, he was uh, able to pay his bills, uh, right? Didn't live pay the paycheck, but rather he was exuberantly wealthy. In fact, we see here he has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, I'm willing to bet you city folk hear that and you're thinking, I, how do you uh, codify what that looks like? If you were to walk into someone's house and they have more than one cat, what do you think about them? I'm trying to make cat jokes here, and some of you are taking them too seriously. <laughs> if you have more than one cat, it is too many, right? You're, you're, you look at them, you're thinking, this is one of those cat people, right? And, and I, I, I need to politely leave, right? So that's two cats is too many. Now imagine 3,000 of them, right? That's a problem. That, that is a problem, Right? And then you add the goats on top of it. Eh, the goats are okay, I guess. This guy has 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. Yes, he is wealthy. Not only is he wealthy, we see that in verse 2, he is also a herdsman. More precise, he, he, he employed shepherds. In an ancient Near Eastern culture, shepherds were usually employed by a wealthy landowner, and they worked for him, they worked for his property, and they worked on his land. And the bowl is the answer here. The third thing we need to note here, made very clear in verse 3, is that he was harsh. That is to say, he was stubborn and difficult to deal with. He may have been a shrewd business owner, but not one you would want to do business with. Harsh to his employees, harsh to his business partners, and anyone that came into his orbit. Fourthly, he was dishonest. You see it again there, verse 3. The, the phrase there is literally badly dist. Uh, badly behaved. Some of your translations may describe him as evil in his dealings. His wealth was a result of hard work and, it seems, dishonest corruption. Fifthly, he was a fool. You can see that in verse 25. His name literally means fool. Now, I don't want to give his parents the benefit of a doubt here, and I'm just going to assume they didn't say, behold, our child, the fool. But given some of the celebrity names we're getting today, behold, my child, Apple. Behold, my child, Banjo, right? I mean, just, if you're not from Kentucky, shouldn't it be illegal to name your child Banjo? Right, even, you should probably only be from Ohio County, 
and get away with naming your child Banjo. But even then, there may need to be a statewide vote. But he, his name means fool. And in the Bible, fool doesn't mean an ignoramus or dumb. It, it speaks of moral character. After all, you don't reach this level of success that he's reached because, because you're ignoramus. Rather, what we see here, as the narrative demonstrates, he lacks clear moral uh, or morality. The sixth thing we need to see here is that Nabal is a clone of Saul. Not a literal clone. They, Star Wars isn't around yet. But, but he is, in the narrative, a type of Saul. Think about it. What we have here is the interruption of the main storyline. In chapters 24 and the chapter before that, Saul's hunting David. And you turn to the next page, guess what's happening? Saul's hunting David. Turn to the next page, Saul's hunting David. And all of a sudden, we get this strange story about this herdsman who won't pay up. And David is going to slaughter a bunch of people. And then you turn to the next page, and guess what's happening? Saul's hunting David. You're like, well, what's going on here? One of the things the narrator wants us to see is, is to have us to go into the, the, the direction of David. The writer wants to ask, will David as king become much like Saul is? Will David make the same mistakes as the generation before him, as, as the king that comes before him? And to do that, the narrator wants you to see that Nabal is so much like Saul. Let me give you a few examples of this. First of all, Nabal, as we said, owns 3,000 sheep. Now, without looking, can you guess how many soldiers Saul has traveling with him to hunt down David? Can you guess? It's 3,000. It's not an accident. One, because his wealth is his identity, 3,000 is the standard. To the other, his power is his identity. So 3,000 becomes it. Secondly, Nabal opposed God and died prematurely, as Saul will at the, end, at the end of the story. Spoiler alert. Thirdly, David uses familial language for both Nabal and Saul. In chapter 24, verse 11, remember David referred to Saul as my father. Here in verse 8 of chapter 25, we see the phrase, your son David. Uh, Nabal is, is not uh, uh, the father of David, Jesse is, of course, but that language is, a, is this language of, of familiarity, of respect, and whatnot. Finally, Nabal was as stingy with his wealth, the source of his identity, as Saul was with his throne. So that's Nabal, the fool. We got Samuel, the dead prophet, Nabal, the fool. Thirdly, we have David, the short-tempered king. The David of chapter 25 is not the same David of chapter 24. Chapter 24, he chose mercy over anger. Chapter 25, he's choosing wrath over patience. And again, the real question is, will David become like Saul? And if the similarities between Nabal and Saul are there so we can see the similarities, they're there to see the similarities of David potentially become like Saul. Nabal is a shepherd with men under him. Is there a character in the story like that? Yeah. David is a shepherd boy with men under him. At the same time, we, we need to see is, is that when David is wrong, now that he's in a royal position in the story, in fact, uh, he's referred to as a king here by Abigail, right? And so now that he's in a royal position, will he treat Nabal, the shepherd with men under him, the way Saul treats David, the shepherd with men under him? That's the point of the narrative. What sort of king will David become? And so... 
what we need to see is what's happened in this narrative is that David, along with his merry men, are commissioned to protect the shepherds of this area. What you have here, you don't have emergencies or you don't have police, firefighters, anything like this at the time. So what you would do is you would hire out uh, uh, the merry men who would basically protect your shepherds and your property from thieves and robbers and whatnot. And, 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 and with that protection allows the economy to do better, which, by the way, let me add a footnote. That's why we have emergency services and public services, right? Is, is, is we want property protected for the sake of our economy, our, our civilization, everything else. But that's Greek apparently these days. But um, and what would happen is that it was common for farmers and landowners to essentially tip these protectors. And they would usually do, do it during shearing season. The reason is because the landowner, this, right, this is the peak season, uh, they're getting their paychecks out, right? And they're in a festive mood. There's a lot of celebration. This was a big time on the calendar. And so typically they would tip those that allowed the shepherds to, to do their job in peace without threat of violence. Uh, but remember, David, is, or Nabal, rather, is a fool. So in verses 48, David makes his request, and, and the quest is, okay, it's time to, to pay up, right? We, we, we've done a good job. We've done it the right way. It's time to pay up. In verse 6, notice that David uses, through his young men, uses the word peace three times, the word shalom. Peace be with you. Peace be with your family. Peace be with your property, whatnot. And, uh, and then he he then gives, gives the instructions there. But in verses 9 to 11, Nabal rejects this request of David. He ain't going to pay. Why? Verse 10, what does he say there? Who's David? Now, he knows who David is. He's the guy making him filthy rich by protecting him. Who's David? It's a rolling of the eye. It's the you ain't got to go home, but you got to get up out of here sort of mentality. In fact, notice the identity in the heart of Nabal in verse 11. Notice the personal pronouns. Shall I, my bread, my water, my meat that I have killed, whom, who come from where I do not know where from? The emphasis is on me. This isn't just a no to the request, but an insult on the way out. And it is this foolishness that endangers Nabal. It endangers his wife, his employees, and his family. Remember that foolishness never blesses or protects. It will only harm and victimize. The decisions you make, the words you choose to use, will affect for the good or ill of those around you. And so what happens in verse 12 through 13? David has a bit of an overreaction. What does he say there? All right. To war, right? Okay, right. Uh, to court first, maybe. But to war seems to be a bit of a, you know, you know, a strongly worded letter to the local newspaper. That could be a good start. Not to war, okay? In fact, remember verse 6, he said peace three times. Verse 13, what word does he use three times? Sword. And what sword does David have on him? Goliath's sword. He has the giant sword with him. Now, this is not the same man who refused to uh, uh, decapitate Saul. Why is he so quick to attack this herdsman? Remember, the text wants the reader to ask, what sort of king is David becoming? Saul has an army of 3,000 looking to attack an army of David of 600. That's overkill. David as an army of 600 looking to attack the household of Nabal and his employees. 
That's overkill. You see, it isn't just that Saul and Nabal are similar in this story. But right now, it looks like Saul and David are very similar in this story. Can I just add a footnote here? It's, it's easy to be critical of leadership, to tell everyone what you would do differently until you're wearing those shoes, isn't it? David's having to learn that the hard way. It's easy to describe Saul as a madman until you're the one having to make all the decisions. Well, that leads us to, I think this is fourthly, Abigail, the, um, the heroine. We now reach the real hero of the story. It's, it's Abigail, the wife of Nabal. Now, the hero of the narrative is not the wealthy business owner. It's, it's, it's not the uh, politician with a large army. Uh, but rather, it is Abigail. She cares for her husband, though he has his flaws. She cares for her family. And she cares for what is best for everyone she meets. And let me just add, do not underestimate the influence an ordinary life has. Abigail here is the hero. And she's a housewife. Yes, she's the hero used by God. You don't need land and power and influence and a television show to be influential. What you need is to be a good mom and dad, husband, wife, co-worker and employer, friend, Neighbor. The text wants us to see the dissimilarities between Abigail and Nabal, right? So there's similar between Saul and Nabal. There's dissimilarities between Abigail and, and, and Nabal. The text there in verse 3 describes her as both beautiful inside and outside. The opposite of Nabal. He's an ugly, terrible human being that you should avoid at all costs. You should block him on Twitter, unfriend him on Facebook, and stop hitting the heart goofy thing on Instagram. Just move on with your life, people. She's talking about Nabal, sorry. Notice, she is wise, her husband is a fool. She is gracious, where he is stingy. She's generous, where he is greedy. She is good, he is evil. She's humble, he's arrogant. She's a peacemaker, he is purposely antagonistic. And notice what she does. First of all, Abigail listens. One of the young men, verses 14 to 17, uh, bypassed Nabal because he realizes David is armed. He's got a military, and he ain't going to stop until he gets his way. And so uh, the young man bypasses Nabal, comes to Abigail, and says, We got problems on our hands, and, and we need to do something. Stat. Stat means now. And so notice Abigail, she listens in verses 14 to 17. And, 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 and the young man warns her that because of Nabal's foolishness, David is threatening to kill them. And all she does in verses 14 to 17 is listen to what it is this young unnamed man has to say. She listens. Secondly, notice in verses 18 to 31, she intervenes. She seeks to, do, to right the wrong. And in verses 18 to 22, she bakes immediately 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine and five sheep among other gifts and brings them to David. Now, I, I'm not a very good cook. I enjoy cooking, but, but I, couldn't, I, I couldn't feed a large family. I wouldn't know where to begin. But I'm imagine 200 loaves of bread. That's a lot of bread. I mean, can you imagine going across the street to Kroger and say, yeah, I'm sorry, I like 200 loaves of bread. And someone, I mean, imagine checking that person out. I mean, I remember how weird it was and I ordered like 10, thing, 10 packages of hot dogs for an event we had here. And the person just looked at me like, like what, what is this? It's a youth fundraiser. You need that many hot dogs? Like, hey, it's 10 for 10. It's on the sign. Just 
you know, 200 loaves of bread. Now that is a Thanksgiving feast. But notice she's a woman of action, not antagonism. What we might expect Abigail to say, of course, that husband of mine, Jesus, he can't get nothing right. No, what does she do? Look, look, I, I can write this wrong. Let's do the right thing. She doesn't blog about it. She just, she is, she resolves to fix the problem. And so verse 23 to 31, she intercedes with grace and dignity on behalf of her husband. Notice in verses 23 to 31, she says the phrase, my Lord, at least by my count, 15 times to David. This is the opposite of Baal. The Baal says, who's David? Abigail says, I know who he is. He is my Lord, my King. And she recognizes that David is the anointed future king of Israel and treats him as such. So not only does she listen and intervene, but she blesses in verses 32 to 35. It is here we see how different David is from Saul. David, unlike Saul, listens to the, uh, the plea of Abigail Remember that Saul is so enraged and consumed with his rage that he will not listen to anyone else until David is dead. David chooses a different path. In fact, notice verse 35, what word returns. They received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice and I've granted your petition. You see what word is back? Peace. Peace. See, it isn't just that Abigail listened and intervened, but David listened and put away his sword. There's one other character in the story we, we need to mention. That's God the judge. We see in verses 36 in the chapter this, don't we? In 36 to 38, Abigail, while she's running inter in interference, what is Nabal doing? He's getting drunk with the boys. Can I just pause there and add a footnote, particularly you young ladies? You can do better than boys who can shave. The ball is a, is a boy who can shave. I don't think he's worthy of the title of man here. Ladies, you can do better than a boy who can shave. And act like it. Pursue someone worthy of a lifetime of your love. And Abigail is suffering under a absolute fool. Ladies, avoid these children at all costs. Nevertheless, after she tells Nabal how she saved them, he is struck with either a heart attack or a stroke. There's debate on either side. It really is a me point, but he dies 10 days later. The text is very clear. It is God who in judgment brings him down. And David interprets that way as well. And what a contrast. At the beginning, we have Samuel who dies quietly with dignity and honor. And he gets one sentence to Nabal, whose entire story is summarized as a fool. He dies, not in honor, but in judgments. So David, verse 39, 44, realizes that the death of Nabal is the Lord's doing. And what he also realizes is that the work of Abigail in saving him was also the Lord's doing. Now, that's really the beautiful part of the story, isn't it? Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've missed it. I don't know. There's a real beautiful part of the story. It is a retelling 
or we should say a foretelling of the gospel. Do you see it? It's right there in the text if you go to see it. It's funny, isn't it, that when David is slaying Goliath, we Americans identify with the hero, the giant slayer, right? And what we do is we manufacture giants, poverty, uh, sickness, my in-laws, whatever it might be. And so I, with five smooth stones, whatever those are, and I can slay my giants. I want to be like David. But when that same David is armed with a giant sword and he's willing to commit genocide, suddenly we're less hesitant to say I'm on his team. Are you David or are you not David? Yeah, that's sort of the point, isn't it? The narrative beautifully compares characters together. Nabal is a mirror to Saul. Abigail is the opposite of Nabal. David is, is will he be like Saul? Will he be more like Abigail? What sort of king will he become? Which will David choose? Initially, he is like Saul. Rash, prone to anger, violence, quick to abuse his power. But what is it that keeps David from going down that path? What keeps David from becoming Saul II? A mediator. A mediator. In fact, the language used in this text, notice there in verse 25, she fell at his feet and says, On me alone, my Lord. What is it? Be the guilt. Now, what is it that we're reading there? It's not her fault that her husband is a fool. Yet she stands before David the king and says, May your judgment fall upon me. The innocent for the guilty. In fact, if you keep reading down, verse 28 Please forgive the trespass of your servants. So what is it we have here? We have substitution followed by grace. May your judgment fall upon me, the innocent. And may grace be the story that we we believe. That is the gospel story, is it not? So you tell me where you are in this story. Are you Nabal the fool? Are you David the quick-tempered king? The answer is yes. Because both require a mediator. As do you. You see, you're not Abigail the hero. You're the sinner in need of a hero. For Saul, it was Abigail. For us, it is Christ who took the mediator role so seriously, willing to suffer for the innocent so seriously, he was willing to be nailed to a tree, his blood to be shed, and to die that day so that you and I, as guilty and foolish as we are, might receive the grace of God. You see, the blessing and the beauty of the story is not possible apart from the mediator of the story. 
So too, the beauty and the blessing of your life isn't based on circumstances, isn't based on elections, isn't based on careers, isn't based on relationships. It's based solely on the blessing and the forgiveness of God on behalf of the finished work of Christ for you. That's the beauty of the story. Because it's not about Abigail. It's about Christ. But it's not about Nabal. It's about you. Will the mediator save you as well this morning? Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you would be kind.